And if you have a Bible with you, turn to Luke 18, Luke chapter 18. And we'll be looking at that in just a bit. I want to make some announcements about some things that are coming up. One is this Saturday is the next Newcomer's Brunch at our house at 10 a.m. Today is the last day for you to let us know if you're coming. We would love for you to come if you've never been to one. But you need to let the folks at the Information Center desk out in the lobby know and let them know before you leave. So that's this Saturday at 10 a.m. Two weeks from today at 5 in the afternoon is our next baptism. And if you've never been baptized, then Jesus commands you to do that. And you need to let me know today. Today's the last day for that. If you want to apply for baptism, there are one-page applications at the Information Center desk. Get one of those, fill it out. They'll get it to me, and we'll go from there. But for the baptism, most of you know that we not only have the baptism itself, but we also have uh, a dinner, a celebration dinner, uh, in honor of those that are being baptized. And for the dinner, you participate in the food, those of you that are able. The church provides the main dish and a bunch of other stuff, but there are some items, a number of them, that we ask the church family to help us with, and you've always been, for all these years, great about doing it. But to uh, facilitate that, we have a sign-up sheet. And during our time this hour, uh, the sign-up sheet is going to be going throughout the, the group. And we've got four seating sections, and so we've got four clipboards uh, with the same thing on them. So you just need to confine your clipboard to your section. So those are going to start at the back or at the front? At the front? Okay. So they're going to start at the front, and when you get to the end of the row, then pass it behind you. And uh, and if you keep doing that, make sure it goes through the row. And if you're at the end of the row, pass it behind you, and then they'll get to the back, and we'll have some folks who will collect those at the back, okay? So put your name next to any food item that you're able to bring for our baptism that is two weeks from today. I'm teaching this hour uh, unexpectedly because we've been announcing for a while that Dr. Combs was going to start a series today on the holiness movement. And he's uh, ready to start that uh, with his material and all, but uh, he's not physically quite ready because for the last three weeks he's had a, a, a persistent cough for a while, then on and off, keeps thinking that it's gone, I'll have a good day, and then the next day coughing again. So didn't want to take the chance that he would have a coughing fit while he was up here teaching. So we're going to delay that hopefully just one week. Hopefully I'll have a consistent several days of no coughing and we'll be able to start the holiness movement uh, series next week. So today you just have a one-off lesson that allows me to just get off my chest whatever I feel like talking about. And uh, that those can be very dangerous. But uh, I have a, a lesson for you on the gospel and gospel implications. That's the title uh, that I'm giving to this lesson. And we'll be looking at Luke 18 and then Luke 15 as well on implications of the gospel. But when I was a, a young person and I got uh, my first, maybe second real job, uh, I was working at and, and worked for five years at an auto parts store. Uh, O'Reilly's, the O'Reilly's that they have now used to be Murray's. And I worked at a Murray's for five years, my last couple of years of high school and first three years of college. And in five years there, I made a number of friends there, most of whom did not have the background that I had. The background that I had 
is in a Christian home with my dad as a as a pastor. And so there were certain just mores and socially accepted things for for us to do and not to do. Uh, And most of these friends that I made at uh, the auto parts supplier hadn't had that upbringing. And we would do some things together. I was in a bowling league with uh, some of these guys and other things. But then there would be times where as we got to the end of our work day, one of them would sometimes come up to me and say, hey, a bunch of us are going out. Uh, to the bar, uh, do you want to go? And then in the middle of asking me to go, they would go, oh, that's right. And then they would say something like this, your religion doesn't let you. Your religion doesn't let you drink. Or they're going to do something else and they say, oh, that's right. Your religion doesn't let you fill in the blank. And I remember as a young person that catching my attention Because it underscored and and belied a belief that most people have. That religion is what you do or don't do. It's a list of rules. And the difference between one religion and another religion is just the particulars of the rules. And your religion lets you do this or some religions don't let you uh, do this. And so religion for most people is what you can do or what you can't do. And in particular, it's the things you do or stay away from in order for you to stay in God's favor. That's the way most people think of religion. It's the stuff you do or stay away from in order for you to stay in God's good graces. And this is why most religions, the vast majority of even so-called Christian denominations... Uh, are believe in what I'll call conditional grace. Or to put it another way, they believe you can lose your salvation. Well, if you think about, if you can lose your salvation, then that is conditional grace. That God's grace is conditioned upon you meeting some requirements. And if you don't meet those requirements, if you don't do the right things or stay away from the right things, then you will lose God's favor. You can even lose your salvation. Now, I actually grew up with that. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm very thankful for that. But I grew up in a Pentecostal home, if that means anything to you. And among other things that our church taught, one of them was that you could have a relationship with God But sometime in the future, you could forfeit that relationship by what you did or what you failed to do. Well, that has implications, doesn't it? If you believe that and you and you truly believe that, as I did as a kid. And I had a very sensitive conscience, so much so that in my junior high and high school years, often I had a hard time sleeping at night. Because I was fearful about my relationship with God. Because I knew my own struggle with sin and didn't know whether I had lost it. Tried to be as scrupulous as I could about maintaining the rules. Not lying, for example. Don't lie. And, you know, I say something and then I realize it's untrue and... Oh, no, I've already lied. And so I, you know, I come to my mom and I say, and I'm in tears. And 
And here's my poor mom. My dad had passed off the scene. By then he died when I was 11. So it's my poor mom having to deal with all this. And, and I'm just convicted and torn. And I say to her things like, well, you know, what if you're just kidding? You know, what's the difference between you're just kidding and it's a lie? And my poor mom would have to make things up. She would say, well, if you correct it within a minute. My mother told me that. You know, within a minute, you've got 60 seconds to get it straight. And if you get to that 61st second, you're going to hell, okay? She, she didn't say that. That was me filling in a blank on that. But it's, it's, it's down to that kind of minute detail to try to determine whether or not I've done the right things, I'm doing the right things, or avoiding the wrong things. So when most people think of religion, they think of it that way. They think religion is the stuff that we do or stay away from to obtain God's favor or stay in God's favor. And so we go to church because that's what God wants. And if we do that, he's going to be pleased with us, we think. Now, that word religion derives from a Latin word, ligere. And it means to tie or to bind. We get our English word ligament from it. It ties things together. So the religious things we do, we think, bind us to God. They rightly relate us to God. And those religious things that we are to do or stay away from are often thought of as an obligation. And by the way, that word obligation, just like ligament, it's also related to that same Latin word, um, ligere. And an obligation is uh, attending church or other religious ceremonies. In fact, in some religions, they designate what are called holy days of obligation. So if you're going to remain related to God, you have these holy days that you need to be a part of. Days you're required to go to church or perform certain rituals. Now, as you read through the Bible, what I think you'll find, I'm convinced, is that when religion is thought of that way, that these are the things we do or the things we avoid in order to obtain or maintain God's favor. When we think of religion that way, God hates that approach to relating to him. God has always despised the I do the right stuff so I'm right with God approach to a relationship with him. Going back to the first part of your Bible, God says through the prophet Isaiah, these people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. And most of you know that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for religious people when he said things like this about them. In Matthew 23, everything they do is done to, for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. Now, he says that they make their phylacteries wide. These phylacteries were little boxes that they tied to their arm or sometimes to their forehead. And these little boxes had little pieces of paper with verses of Scripture on them. And that whole exercise was to show people how religious they were. 
that they were properly related to God by what they did, and as a result, they believed they enjoyed God's favor. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story that underscores his disdain for that kind of an approach. Now, as I go through this story of the two men who approached the temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector, I need to acknowledge my indebtedness to uh, to Tim Keller. He has a book called The Gospel in Life, The Gospel in Life, where he goes through some of what I'm going to say here from Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 18. But in Luke 18, let's look together at this parable Jesus gives. Verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's stop there for a moment. The tax collector is a social outcast in that day. And the Pharisee is a, an extremely religious guy. And then verse 11 says, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. In fact, it says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. So here's the religious guy's prayer. His understanding of sin and of virtue is completely external. Notice it's completely focused on behavior and the violation of or the keeping of rules. He's not looking inside. He's not looking at character. Sin is perceived completely in terms that you can count, that you can identify, individual discrete actions that can be observed. And so he says, I don't rob, I don't commit adultery, I don't cheat, I give my money away, I fast, I do my religious observances. And Jesus says, actually, uh, literally, he prayed, not just he prayed, but he prayed about himself. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that I'm getting more patient, or I'm getting to be a gentler person, or I'm able to love people in a way that I was not able to love in the past. I'm able to keep my joy and my peace even when things go bad. This guy's not praying that way. He's not talking about those things. He's completely externally focused. His understanding of sin, his understanding of virtue is completely oriented to what he does, keeping and and breaking rules. And his religion enables him to compare himself favorably then to other people. They don't do what I do. So he says, I thank you I'm not like other men. Implying, of course, that he's, he's so much better. And Jesus said this was a man who looked down on everybody else. He thinks he's better than everybody else because he's not a robber, he's not an evildoer, he's not an adulterer. And of course, all of those things are prohibited in the Bible. Not stealing, doing evil, or committing adultery. But then he says, and I tithe. That is, I give, that's in the Bible too. But then he says, I fast twice a week. And there's nothing about fasting twice a week in the Bible. So not only does he keep all these rules, he's created some of his own rules to show how religious he is. Well, that's the religious guy. That's the guy who believes our relationship to God is entirely based upon what we do or we fail to do. And it allows him then to compare himself to others, contrast himself with others, and look down on others. 
Now you contrast that with the tax collector, this social outcast. He was hated and despised because he was an arm of the the Roman government. And most of them were really thieves because the way they were compensated by the Roman government was they were to collect a certain quota of money from the people, but anything they collected above that they could keep. So they had a perverse incentive to squeeze as much as they could out of the the citizenry. And so people hated them. But he knew what he, he was. And so this is what he says about himself. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, Actually, in the way that's written in in Greek, that last phrase, God have mercy on me, a sinner, it actually says, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. Now, as you contrast these guys, two ways of looking at this. If If you think of sin externally and comparatively, like the religious guy, the Pharisee does, then there's always somebody who's committed more sins than you. So this actually works out pretty well because I can compare myself, contrast myself, and at least I'm not as bad as those people. Now let me just stop for a moment and have you think about the people that you talk about. And Christian friend, this is going to be a real temptation for us in the years to come in a culture that is post-post-Christian. It's been post-Christian for a long time. Now it is just far gone. And we're seeing, starting to see the results of that in our culture. And it's going to be very easy for we, us as Christian people to have these kinds of external religious hearts to be exposed in the way we talk and in, the, in our attitudes toward those that are in the culture. We're not like those people. We don't do that stuff. And that's one of the advantages to having this external approach. You can always think of yourself as better than other people because there's always someone who's committed more sins than you. You're only ever a sinner among many. And the question is, who sinned the most? But in that attitude, you're never the sinner. But this guy, this tax collector, he's thinking about sin in, in absolute terms. Not just how many can I count, how many have I committed versus how many have you committed, which ones have I committed versus the ones you've committed. What he's saying is all I know is I'm lost and where everybody else is doesn't matter. It's about me and my relationship to God. So he doesn't come to God with religion and a list of all he's done. He asks for mercy. That's the way most people think of religion. The stuff you do, the stuff you don't do in order to gain or maintain a relationship with God. Most people are in some degree like the Pharisee in the way they think about relating to God. And we normally think that there are only two ways to relate to God. Those of us who believe the gospel. We think that you either embrace the gospel of the good news of Christ or you reject the gospel. There's only those two ways. But there are actually three ways to relate to God. One is you receive him in the gospel. Christ is our Savior and our Lord. That's the right way to relate to God. But then you can reject the gospel, but there are two ways to reject the gospel. Now follow it. There's the irreligious way, and there's a religious way to reject the gospel. 
Irreligion or unbelief just avoids God as Savior and Lord by living the way you want and discarding what God says. So that's your your typical pagan, your person who wants nothing to do with God. They're just out there doing their own thing. That's a rejection, of course, of the gospel. It's it's a way and and a very popular way to reject God. But there's also a religious way to reject God. Religion or or moralism avoids God as Savior and Lord by working very hard to be incredibly good and obey God's laws so that you feel that God owes you. So that by being good, all your religion and all your morality is really a way to earn your salvation. And that also is a rejection of the gospel. Because the good news is, you're so bad... That Jesus did everything for you. But religion says, I can gain acceptance from God by what I do. And that's a rejection of the good news of the gospel also. So many people who think they're Christian, so many people who go to church, really have no sense of the reality of God in their lives. And it's because they're looking at the fact that they live very good lives and they're basing their sense of self-worth and their value on their morality, how good they are, their moral performance, so that religion becomes the thing that saves them. Their religion and their morality instead of Jesus becomes their salvation. So, you know, even people who could correctly answer on a Bible quiz, a Bible exam how it is we're supposed to relate to God correctly. Even those people in our thoughts and in our attitudes can often live as though our good deeds are our salvation. Most of you here know, intellectually at least, and if you were to take that exam, you would probably get it right. How do I relate to God? Is it by what I do? You would say no. That would be the right answer. So most of us know that intellectually. We're not related to God by what we do, but that doesn't mean our hearts believe that. So in the way we live and in the way we think and the way we talk and the way we act in our work and in the way we respond in day-to-day interaction with people to things like criticism, in the way we relate to other people, all of that continues to be based on the operating principle of self-help for our relationship with God, a sort of self-salvation. At the deepest level, even some of us who know intellectually better, our hearts say, I'm good enough. And if I continue to be good enough, and if I'm kind enough, if I reach my standards and I live up to them, then and only then am I valuable and significant. So I'm wondering if that's the language of your heart. If you're the person that is so meticulous and so scrupulous... Because you think that this is the means by which I relate to God and I have a relationship with God. Now, Jesus told another story, another parable about two sons. We have the one in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. But just a few pages back in Luke 15, he tells the story of two sons, the younger brother, the prodigal and his older brother. So Jesus tells this story about religion and irreligion in this story that we know as the prodigal son. Now, we call it the prodigal son, and you could get the idea from that title then that the story is about one son. 
But the story is really not about one son. It's about two. In fact, Jesus starts out by saying a man had two sons. He's wanting to highlight things about both of these sons. An older brother and a younger brother. And they're both important. And many of you know the story that it starts with this younger son rejecting the father and taking his inheritance and going into a, a far country. And while he's there, he gets involved in wild living and he blows all that he had received until he's impoverished. And while all that's going on, you've got the older brother who stays at home and he obeys the father. He does all the external stuff. Now, each of those two guys represents these two ways to live, these two ways to reject the gospel. One's the irreligious way. I'm just going to go my own way and live in the way I want to do and forget God. But the other way is to reject the gospel by believing that I'm good enough. The younger brother, the prodigal, went away and he lived this wild life. And he represents a traditional understanding of sin. You convert, convert with prostitutes. You spend your money until you're in poverty. You engage in licentious living. And we would all look at that and we go, yeah, now that's sin. That's the irreligious life. I just make my own rules. But as you look at that story, you see that the older, obedient son is just as alienated from the father as is the younger son. And you see it by his reaction when his brother comes home. The story goes on, as most of you know, that the, at some point the young man realizes his mistake. He comes back to his home and he asks his father to forgive him. And the father not only forgives him, but he throws a feast to celebrate the occasion. He kills the fatted calf for food, places a, a robe on him, and he has his servants put a ring on his finger. Now, remember this. The younger son had used his, his portion of the inheritance from his father. So the party that's being thrown now is using the older brother's money. Hey, wait a minute. You're going to give a robe to that guy? You already gave him all his money. You're going to give a ring to that guy? That's my, that's my money you're giving to that guy. And the Bible says the older brother is furious. He's so furious that he refuses to attend the party. And in that way, you see that the two brothers who, although they look very different, they're really exactly the same in their hearts. Both of them wanted the father's stuff, but not the father. So why won't the older brother participate in the party? Well, he says in verses 28 and 29 of Luke 15. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. But he said to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You see, the thing that's keeping him from the father's feast is not how bad he is, it's how good he thinks he is. He's got the religious mindset, I've done these things and now you owe me. So these two sons are much more alike than it at first appears. In the one, you have a lover of prostitutes. In the other, you have a lover of his own self-righteousness. But in their hearts, they both want the same things, the things that the Father can give, not the Father himself. And each of them takes different paths to get what they want. One pursued it by being very, very bad. The other one by being very, very good. But they're both lost. Okay? So the one guy is lost, and he shows how lost he is by how very bad he is. 
but the other guy is also lost. And the evidence of his lostness is in how very good he thinks he is. They're both lost. One was spiritually lost from home. The other was spiritually lost at home. And in the end of the story, it's the younger son, the bad son, who's actually saved because he repents and comes to the father's feast. And it's the older son who is lost despite how externally good he is because his pride and his morality keeps him from accepting the father's invitation. So you see, friends, there are these two ways to be your own savior and your own Lord. Just as there were these two ways for these sons to try to get the father's stuff, one tried being very, very bad, the other very, very good. And Jesus says they're both lost. There's a third way to live. It's not the irreligious way. It's not the the religious way, but a third way. And what is that? Well, that's given in the story. The third way to live involves three things. One, you receive the Father's initiating love for you. Quite apart from how good or bad you are, you receive the Father's initiating love for you. You see, the father does not just go out to bring in the younger son. He begs the older one to come in too. Verse 20. The younger son got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And verse 28 says the father went out and pleaded with his older son to come in as well. So the first thing you've got to do if you're going to pursue this third and right way is we've got to receive the initiation, the initiative of the the Father toward us. The Father invites us, good or bad. And then secondly, we learn to repent not only of our bad things, but for the reason for our good things. We learn to repent not only of the bad stuff we do, but of having a self-righteous reason for the good things we do. And both of those require repentance. Remember this. Why won't the older brother go in? Because he says, I've never done anything bad. What keeps him out is his love for his own righteousness. He's been doing the right things, but he's been doing them for the wrong reason. So we need the initiating love of the Father. We need to repent of both our irreligion, just doing our own thing, the bad stuff we do, but also our religious sin. And religious sin is doing the right stuff for the wrong reason. And then third, we've got to see the cost that is required to bring us home. See the cost that's required in order to bring us home. Remember, the father embraced his prodigal son. He gave him that expensive robe and ring and party. But that all belonged to the older brother. It was part of his inheritance. It means the father could bring the younger son home, but it's not free. There's a cost to bringing this younger son home. It's free to the younger brother, but it's at the expense of the older brother. Now, if this older brother were truly a good older brother... He would have agreed with his father and he would have rejoiced and he would have said readily, yes, I'll bring, 
I'll bring the fatted calf and I'll put my ring and my robe on him and sacrifice a part of what is mine for him so that he can be brought home. But sadly, it turns out this good, religious, moral, older brother was not so good at all. This younger brother did not have a good older brother. And that leaves us looking for that good older brother that we all need. Who's willing to, at his own cost, pay for what we need. Pay for what we need if we're the bad sinner or we're the good sinner. And that older brother is Jesus. Jesus is the one who then makes the payment in full at his own absolute expense. It's free to us, but complete, but costly to him. And friends, every last person needs to come to Jesus. Whether they're the irreligious sinner or whether they're the religious sinner. And my concern is this, that our churches have people in them who live with a heart, even if not a mind, but a heart that believes that they're getting brownie points with God, that our relationship with God is based upon the stuff we do. And if that's the case, it has a number of implications for us. And I'd like to spend our remaining time talking about some of those implications. So you've got an approach that I'll just call religion, and then you've got an approach that I just call God's grace. There's a religion, as I've described it, that says my relationship to God is by what I do or stay away from. And if I do it well enough, I'll be related to him and stay related to him. So the approach of religion versus the approach of of God's grace. Religion says this, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. That's what religion says. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. Now, some of you are furiously writing, which is beautiful. I'll be happy to send you a copy of this. Um, and I would have given you a copy, except our copier is not working. No, no kidding. So yesterday it went on to blink. The programs that were printed for today were done at Office Max or something. So, But I'll be happy to email you one. If you email me, I'll, I'll send you this, okay? But religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But God's grace says this, and it's profoundly different. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I obey because I'm accepted. You see, and that's the way your Bible's laid out. You go to the book of Romans, and it's 16 chapters explaining the beauty of the gospel. And the first 11 chapters are about all that Christ has done and some of the implications of that, but it's when you get to chapter 12 that a transition is made that says, now do this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice because you're accepted. Because of what God has done, now do this. Religion says do it and you'll be accepted. God's grace says you're accepted, therefore, in light of that, do it. Our motivations are different. And a religious approach versus a God's grace approach. The religious motivation is based on fear and insecurity. If I don't do this, I'm not going to measure up. I could lose it. 
The motivation from a God's grace perspective is based on grateful joy. So when I was a young person and those friends would come and say, hey, do you want to go and do X? Oh, that's right. Your religion doesn't let you. I, the Lord used that in my life for me to have to think about. Why, why do I refrain from certain things? And why do I engage in certain activities that my friends don't care about at all? <laughs> why do I roll out of the rack to go to church every Sunday? Is that so that I can check off a list with, with God? Do I refrain from these things because my religion says I can't? No, the reason that I do the stuff I do and refrain from the things I don't do is because of grateful joy because of what God has done for me. The motivation is different. Religion, in religion, you obey in order to get things from God. And from a God's grace perspective, you obey not to get things from God, but to get God. To delight in Him and to resemble Him in the way you think and talk and act. And this, this approach, these implications will affect you in just the everyday stuff of life. You know, the, when circumstances in your life go wrong, which they do for all of us, if you have the religious approach, you get angry at God or yourself or both. Since you believe that anyone who does good deserves a comfortable life. Remember, that's the bargain. I do the right stuff then this is what I'm supposed to get. And this is one of the reasons that Christian people are, are so devastated when something goes wrong in their lives. Because at heart, even though they know on paper it's not true, in their hearts, they think this is the bargain. I've done all of this stuff, that shouldn't happen to me. But in God's grace approach, when circumstances go wrong, we struggle for sure. But we know that all our punishment was placed on Jesus. And that while God may allow this for my training, my discipline, he's going to exercise fatherly love in whatever trial that he takes me through. So I look at it as if God's not doing something to me, God's doing something for me. All right, here are a few others. When I'm criticized... Whether you take a religious approach or a grace approach is going to impact. When I'm criticized from a religious standpoint, I'm furious or I'm devastated. Because remember, it's crucial that I think of myself as a good person. And threats to self-image have to be destroyed at all costs. What? I do something wrong? Really? Yeah, you. Yeah, me. But in a God's grace approach, when I'm criticized, yes, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Because my identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Jesus. It affects things like your prayer life. You know, if your prayer life and your relating to God is primarily about getting stuff from God, then what are you going to pray about? It's going to be primarily and largely petition. And that only then gets heated up in, in times of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. But from a God's grace perspective, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration of God. And my main purpose in praying is fellowship with this God. 
You'll have a different approach. I'm almost done. But in these two approaches, religion versus God's grace, you'll have a a different approach to your view of yourself. In the religious perspective, your self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But when I'm but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who are failing. And if and when I'm not living up to the standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. That's the religious approach. In the God's grace approach, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I'm sinful, but I'm accepted in Him. I'm so bad that He had to die for me, and I'm so loved that He was willing to die for me. And this leads me to humility and confidence at the same time. And then lastly, from a religious standpoint, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And I have to look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. But from a God's grace perspective, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. And I am saved by sheer grace. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace am I am what I am. So you see, friends, this will have a major impact on now us. In our daily lives, in our homes, in our circles of influence. But now in the larger society. As the society continues to go the direction that it's going. And we have the temptation to compare and contrast ourselves to others. As if we are better. Listen, here's what Christianity teaches. You're not better, I'm not better. We're better off, thanks be to Jesus. We're better off, but we're not better. (laughs) And it's only because of His grace. So, those are implications of the gospel. That we need to think about. If you want a copy of those contrasts that I've gone through, as I say, email me. You can see me. I'll give you my card with my email address on it, and I'll send it to you this week, all right? Let's ask the Lord then to go with us and to help us to apply these implications of the gospel to our lives. Our Father, we thank you for this time to think about the good news of the gospel. Lord, our, our hearts are so deceitful that we can convince ourselves that we have it right And we may have it right on paper, but in practice we do not. Lord, some of these areas that we've gone through reveal what we really think about you and about ourselves and about the person and work of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that this has been a convicting time for us on the one hand, to reveal, expose some things that we falsely have had harbored in our hearts, And Lord, then in this sacred moment, help us, though, to to with joy run to the Father. Run to the Father in whom we are accepted in the beloved, the Lord Jesus. So that we are are coming to the one who embraces us, who, who runs to us, as did the Father to the prodigal. And that we're repenting, yes, of the bad things we do, but also of the good things we do for the wrong reason. And then as a result of that, and getting our minds around this and thinking it through, Lord, may it create the joy and the gratitude that it's designed to create in your people. So that we live for you and that we run hard after Christ 
And we do all of these things, but we do them not for what we can get, but for what we've been given. As a result, Lord, make us the most loving and joyful people in your world. That's what you've designed us to be. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit comes from understanding your gospel. Help us to put it into practice this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.